Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Austin Common Radio Hour. I'm your host, Amy Stansbury, and today we're talking about one of the most important races this election cycle, the Austin Mayor's Race. This is a pretty big deal because after serving for two terms, the current Austin Mayor, Steve Adler, is leaving office at the end of this year, and six candidates are running to replace him. Now, if you've been listening to this show for a while, you know that Austin actually has what's called a weak mayor system, which means that our mayor is basically just the 11th member of city council. The mayor doesn't really have like a lot of additional powers. They don't have veto power or anything like that. Their vote is worth just as much as any other council member's vote. But unlike other council members, the mayor is elected by everyone in the city, not just a single district. And the mayor runs the council meetings and, you know, tends to get a lot more media attention. And in general, the mayor really can set the tone and direction for our city. So deciding who that person will be is important. And in a minute, we're going to hear from those people who are running and uh, listen to their own unique personal background and vision for the future of Austin. Oh, and for each of these interviews, I did ask the candidates to participate in a little show-and-tell activity. Basically, I asked them to bring one item of sentimental value or something that showed something about themselves as, like, real human people, and then to share that with all of us. So you're going to hear that in the interviews. And if you want to see photos of what they brought, you can check that out on our Instagram page. Okay, now let's just get right into the interviews. Uh, First up is Celia Israel. Okay, I'm here with Celia. We're talking mayor's race, obviously. Uh, let's just get right into it. Who are you? Why are you running? <laughs> well, my name is Celia Israel. I'm a member of the Texas House of Representatives. I've uh, been there for nine years, and um, I'm originally from El Paso, Texas, uh, the daughter of Maria and Hugh. He was a truck driver. She was a teacher's aide. And um, I mentioned my working class background because I, I, I know that it's helped make me a better um, more understanding state representative, and it will make me a better mayor. And uh, why am I running to be a mayor for all of Austin? We're we're in really difficult times right now, and I want to use this. Um, this is a crisis, as it is an emergency, whatever you want to call it. And let's let's look back on this time and be proud of the way that Austin uh, addressed the crisis. I want us to become to hang on to that spirit of Austin that invited me here in 1982 to attend the University of Texas. That spirit of Austin is in danger, and that's why I'm running. Mm-hmm. Let's let's dive right into the issues. Housing affordability obviously is on top of everyone's minds. I know that um, you put out kind of a housing plan or proposal yeah. that you'd like to see happen if you're elected with six different parts to it. Let's, let's dive into some of those. Sure. Um, you know, the one thing that The first one you have there, the first bullet point here is more housing for working families. Um, Can you talk a little bit more about what we can be doing as a city to actually provide housing for working families? Because that's what so much of the conversation has been on lately. And it feels like a lot of our efforts have fallen flat or have not done as much as we would like them to do. Yeah, well, uh, there's no doubt we, we have we have failed uh, many of the the working men and women of, of Austin and their and their families. Uh, I'll go back a little bit as well. Um, Austin has a history of saying, let's not build it and they won't come. That's mm-hmm. been true of transportation and it's been true of housing. Um, at the turn of the century of the last century, we, we had a very racist policy that said, we, want, we, we don't want people of color in certain neighborhoods. Um, we stopped building fourplexes and duplexes dramatically in the 80s. 
we of course uh, built an, an I-35 that was that was intended to divide. It was uh, something that we now call a, a, a part of our racist past. We haven't done enough as a city to overcome the, that segregationist uh, past. And, and I say that as someone who is a big uh, advocate for, for, for transit and, and multimodal. So I, when I talk about housing, I tend to talk about transit and land use at the same time because I want people to live closer to where they work, basically. So what can the city do? Some people say, well, the market is the market, right? Um, but number one, we, we brought much of this onto ourselves. And um, number two, we own, we own land. Um, we own 6,000 tracts of land. And the city does. Be, the city of Austin does. Yeah. And um, we could be doing public good with public place. That's one of the points on, on, my, on my policy. Um, I'm trying to sound the alarm that we are pushing out the teachers and the nurses and the and the and the uh, the cooks and the musicians. They 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 no longer can afford to live here. The median home price is now north of six hundred thousand dollars, or it's wavering around six hundred thousand dollars. And what can we do? It's going to take bold, intentional projects um, like taking what was um, what was a bank, what was a shopping center. What was what? What is our own property that needs to be converted and it's being used as storage facilities right now? Um, I refuse to accept that Austin is doing all that it can, and we're one of the few American cities that's losing its percentage of Latinos and African Americans as well. So we're losing our diversity, and even if you don't care about diversity, we're losing our economic strength. We can't continue to expect people to to uh, to teach our kids and then go home at night to Bastrop, Texas. Mm -hmm. that, that's, not, that's not fun, that's not viable, and most importantly, that's not equitable, that's not Austin. Um, I moved here in 1982, my mom and dad moved a mobile home over to Lake Austin Boulevard, and um, I lived on $140, a rent, my rent was $140 a month, and I delivered pizzas um, right there at MLK uh, at the University of Texas. I came out of college with very little debt, those days are a part of our past, but I mention it because I, I want the future Celias to say, I want to live right here. And um, our, our, and our, our economy is, is, in a, is in a tenuous position because of the policy of our past. So to correct that, we need to be intentional and then we need to be bold. Yeah. So let's talk about some of those specifics there. The public housing, uh, I mean, the public land component is interesting. I don't think a lot of people realize how much land the city owns um, mm -hmm. that is being used for, like you mentioned, things like storage space or office space that might be able to be better used. What are the ways that we could activate that public land more quickly because you know a lot of times i feel like our default is well we need a housing bond to build housing on it and you have a limited amount of funds housing bonds are great but you know can it seems like you're also looking into some more creative solutions with ways that we could really build land on some of that public space quicker yeah um a lot of my, my campaign is about, you know, meeting people where they are. And I was in the Crestview neighborhood and the, the neighbors pointed out the Austin Energy Facility at Justin Lane, near Justin Lane and Lamar. Um, that is uh, a piece of land that we, that we own. And the, my, 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 um, our neighbors pointed it out to us and said, 
you know, the city's been thinking about doing housing there. We pulled up a community impact newspaper article. The city had, has been, and still is thinking about doing housing there. It's been 12 years. So this is, it's not like I'm the first person to say, let's use our public mm -hmm. land for good. But I'm trying to lean in on the urgency of the situation um, on behalf of those who are driving this economy. And, um, you know, my personal uh, story is relevant here as well, because my wife and I are, are between homes right now. And we got that notice from the property management company that said $300 more a month. If you want to stay here, take it or leave it. So, you know, I, I understand that people are hurting and that we are we are at a very uh, uh, we are at an inflection point because of this housing crisis. At the end of the day, this is a housing supply problem, and we need more kinds of housing in more parts of the city. Not pushing people out to the eastern edge of the of the of the county and then pat ourselves on the back because of that. I'm 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 not losing sight of the fact that part of equity, part of Project Connect, part of us being the 11th largest city in the country, is being proud of the fact that in the midst of this crisis. We, we did something intentional for, for, for musicians and for nurses and teachers and bus drivers. Mm -hmm. They're the ones who are driving this economy and should not be forgotten. Yeah. You know, I, I've heard you mention a lot about things like fourplexes, sixplexes, eightplexes, you know, kind of this missing middle housing that we like to talk about yeah. a lot in Austin. Yeah. Um, and that's another one where I've heard council talk about the need for that for years and years and years and years. And yet, like, yeah. it doesn't seem like we have a lot more missing middle housing. Yeah. So what specifically can council be doing in order to really ramp up development by the private sector of that missing middle housing? Um. The um, the missing middle housing is 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 a is is our challenge, and you you nailed it right on the head. It's another item that we have talked about, uh, and uh, the city has a program called Affordability Unlocked, for example, and that's a program where if somebody wanted to take an acre of land, I, I have had this example as as a realtor, and turn it into what was a house, and turn it into a couple of fourplexes. Um, the city will help you pay for your utilities if you designate some of those units at an affordable unit. The, 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 the deal that has to change is the speed. The, mm. city, uh, the city treats that development as if it was a 300 unit apartment complex and it needs a site plan and it needs two years of review. Why, why, uh, why a fourplex or a sixplex needs two years of review is the, is the reason why we see people demolishing houses and building one big house because the city doesn't change its processes and procedures to say that. So you and I just talked about the, the bigger projects where we could build row houses, maybe we could put a childcare center or a pocket park. The other, the other component of this is a fourplex or, or a couple of, or a sixplex where it's appropriate, where somebody mm -hmm. could, could walk, to, walk to the number one bus and catch it every eight minutes. This is life in a big city, but Austin has never fit into that, that uniform of the 11th mm -hmm. largest city in the world. And it, it, it's going to take a movement. It's mm -hmm. not about Celia, it's not about a title. I'm running because uh, this campaign is about creating a movement and an awareness around housing. Other, other leaders in our community have been, have been crying for this kind of action. I just happen to be a woman with, with, with a good record politically, who is leaning in on the city that molded me in 1982 to say we can do so much more. 
and I and that's that's my goal. Yeah. Let's talk some about your record. You know, when I think about your work. Um, at the Texas legislature, I think a lot about transportation. I know that was an issue that you really dove into. Can you talk some about um, some of your work at the ledge of the transportation and then kind of how you're going to use those lessons learned to feed into, um, you know, being mayor? Because in Austin, we have two big transportation projects ahead of us. We have what's going to happen with I-35 and the build out of Project Connect. Mm -hmm. How do you feel like your experience can help with that? Well, it's not just my legislative experience. I'll take you back a little bit to say mm -hmm. I was on the I was on the environmental board, um, a bond committee, the uh, Robert Miller Advisory Committee, and the Police Oversight Board. Uh, so you know, to give some institutional background, the, of course, the Robert Miller Advisory Committee is where there used to be a damn airport. <laughs> People don't realize that. But um, and then nine years in the legislature. So working working in the legislature, it. Uh, I was on the transportation committee for two for two legislative sessions, and uh, being the person to advocate for transportation safety, to advocate for multimodal transportation solutions, um, and understanding that um, you've you've got to victory is somewhere in the middle. We've got to work across those party lines to find that victory. Uh, and with 150 members of the House of Representatives, I think I will transfer that to a 10 member council, where each of those members deserves to be respected for the turf that they represent, right? They were elected. They know intersections and people and, and small business owners that I do not know. So as mayor, I hope to, I hope to, to, to um, not just lead the meetings, but to lead the discussion and be respectful of those 10 members because I can't get anything done without their, their support. And, um, uh, the, 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 the people skills, the, the realities of moving things forward is, is part of the job. You can, you, maybe, maybe um, one of my colleagues on the dais can help me with this item number 50, but they can't be with me on number 80. That's okay. There'll be another opportunity for us to work together. We can't let this crisis get in the way of us moving things forward. Mm -hmm. And specifically around I-35, this has been a big yeah. one. Do you yeah. feel like there's anything... <laughs> The city can do about this because there is this tension, you know, TxDOT and the state own I-35 or in charge of it. And there's this back and forth. What do you feel like the city can do about shaping the future of I-35? We the, the TxDOT plan is out of sync with the community's vision for what they want in an I-35. We have in the Biden administration an administration with with um, uh, uh, that is more attuned to equity than they ever have been. <clears throat> the equity component of I-35 is when we dig it and then cap it and, and stitch it, if that's what happens. That's the equity part. Um, TxDOT is saying to us, you, you will, uh, we're, we're gonna expand more lanes and, you're, and, that's, and that's what you're gonna get. They've been tinkering with it, but they're still destroying over 100 homes and businesses. So there is an equity, um, argument to be made to to uh, to uh, the Biden administration, who's a big who, who will play a big role in what I-35 becomes. Um, I have challenged the the uh, text at, at several different occasions as a legislator. Um, you can't just build more lanes and expect that you have succeeded. Uh, Houston is the example of that. My uh, my main opponent in this race was quoted as saying 
that we need to leave that tech stock plan alone. And I, I couldn't disagree more. This is a time for us to elevate our voice as, as mayor, as council, as members of the community to say, this is not the asset that we need. This is just repeating the sins of the past. This is just exacerbating it, especially at a time when we are, we are challenged with, the, um, with, with climate change. We can't, we, we, the future is, is, is multimodal. The future is autonomous, perhaps. The future involves more technology components. And I'm not getting any of those assurances from TechStop. So I'm, I'm quite comfortable saying to TechStop, I, I challenge your plan and I expect more from you. Yeah, we don't have too much time left, but before we close, I wanted to, you know, you mentioned you're running against Kirk Watson as one of your major opponents in this race. He had been mayor before. You know, what do you feel like you bring to the table with your experience that, that, that sets you apart from him, that you feel like you can really address the crisis we're dealing with right now as a city? Well, number one, we, we're both, we both have a lot of experience, right? We're yeah. both, we have both have been in the same swimming pool. The difference is that this race is not about nostalgia and the good old days. Mm-hmm. This race is about visionary, bold, futuristic plans to change the heart of the city. Mr. Watson would have us uh, do some creative land use uh, out by Decker Lake, which is great. I'm not opposed to that, but I don't want to let us off the hook for what about what about that nurse at Seton? What about that teacher at Zilker Elementary? What about the kindergarten teacher uh, at uh, at at uh, in downtown Austin? These are these are the people that we are we are losing by the week by the week. My family has been through that, and I've talked to people who are going through that. So my, my vision is as a, as a working-class chick, uh, born of working-class parents, and a lived experience that's very different from my opponents. As a Latina, as a member of the LGBT community, uh, as someone who's lived here since 1982, we should, we should look back on this crisis and say, wow, that was rough, but Austin did really cool things to, to, to be intentional about Work, uh, the workers who are driving that economy. If we don't, if we don't take bold and decisive action, we are be- going to become a city of um, elitist millionaires who, who got their piece of Austin. Mm-hmm. Well, great, but the spirit of Austin will be lost. The spirit of Austin that drew me here in 1982 and said, we welcome you, Latina, uh, lesbian, different kind of chick from El Paso, Texas. We welcome you into the fold. We're losing that spirit. Mm-hmm. And then just before we close, let's get to know you a little bit better. What's your show and tell item for us today? Well, I was tempted to bring out my Longhorn Gnome because it's OU weekend, baby. But <laughs> I, um, uh, I think about my mom a lot on this on this journey. Um, Maria Elena was a patriot and a huge respect. She loved Barbara Jordan more than anybody I know. When she would come and visit me and, and she would when she would fly in, in her wheelchair, I would, I would wheel her up to the Barbara Jordan statue and mom would just, you, you think she was looking at Jesus Christ himself. <laughs> um, but anyway, this is, this is mom. Rocking an Austin shirt. Yeah, this is in El Paso, Texas. And she, she was so proud of me. And so she was a proud American and uh, proud Texan. My God, I love Texas very much. And it's because of Maria Elena Gomez Israel. This is, this is, this is the woman that brought me into the world. And that was Celia Israel. Next up, we're going to listen in on an interview I recorded with Kirk Watson. 
I'm here with Kirk. We're talking the mayor's race. Let's dive right into it. Who are you? Why are you running? Well, my name's Kirk Watson. Um, for those that don't know me, I was mayor of Austin, Texas from 1997 until 2001. Uh, I was elected to the Texas Senate representing Austin and the surrounding area in 2006, and I served there until 2020 when I became the founding dean of the Hobby School of Public Affairs at the University of Houston. Uh, I, the pandemic kind of changed the nature of that job since uh, they shut the campus, but, it, but I'm now back in Austin, uh, although I never really left, and I'm uh, running for mayor because I love Austin, Texas, and we have some big challenges right now, and I believe this city needs and deserves to have a mayor that has a proven record of success at bringing people together, creating coalitions, and getting the big things done that we're going to need in the future. Awesome. Uh, before we get into the, some of those big issues, I want to learn a little bit more about you again. You were mayor before. Um, what was one thing maybe from that time in office that you're you're really proud of that still stands you know, today? And maybe one thing that was a lesson learned for you that you'd like to take into potentially a second time in the mayor's seat? Sure. Um, the, the, the one thing that I would point to uh, that I'm really proud of is that when I was first elected mayor of Austin, Austin had a de facto two-party system. It wasn't Republican and Democrat, but it was environmentalists versus developers. It was the Save Our Springs Alliance versus the Chamber of Commerce or Sierra Club versus the Real Estate Council. And people said, you'll never be able to break through that, that that's always going to be there. They saw our politics as a zero-sum game, all or nothing. Uh, somebody had to win and somebody had to lose. And I said, I just don't see things that way. And so we were able to bring an end to that war. And at the same time, in, in doing so, we preserved more land uh, than in the history of the city of Austin and, and did that as part of those efforts. So uh, I, I'm really pleased not only with the way we reshape politics, but the way we showed that, that politics in Austin doesn't have to be winner take all. Uh, lessons learned, uh, there, you know, there's always lessons to, to be learned, but one of the key lessons learned was that we uh, went for an election to have transit, uh, mm, to have yep, a light rail system. Yeah, in 2000. And uh, it passed in Austin, but it didn't pass in the metro area. And one of the key lessons learned from that for me was that when you're taking a big program like that to the people, you need to always be sure that you have clearly defined your purpose for that program and that you've tried to bring in new and different constituencies that may be for it for different reasons than you or the original people, but you build those constituencies and then you have greater success. Yeah. Um, let's dive some into the issues. Obviously, housing affordability, top of mind for everyone. I know that you've put forth um, a plan of things you'd like to, to start working on right away when you get into office when it comes to housing affordability. I thought we could run through some of those bullet points sure. um, and share that now. So one of the things um, you have there top of mind is really looking at our development services department. Do you want to talk about what you mean by that and some a sunset review process with that? As yeah, well? I'd be, uh, be happy to do that. Um, I was on the Texas Sunset Commission for many years 
appointed by the lieutenant governor. It's a the Sunset Commission is an independent agency that reviews uh, all other state agencies to determine whether or not they're doing their job, whether they're effective, or they're using best practices, things of that nature. And while I was on the Sunset Commission, as a matter of fact, I uh, had Capital Metro go through the Texas Sunset process to improve its operations and the way it governed itself. Um, what I want to do is for our Development Ser Services Department is have the city auditor, which reports to the mayor and council, have the city auditor set up a sunset process and take no more than nine months, but scrub and review our Development Services Department from top to bottom soup to nuts, get it all done, making recommendations about best practices, making recommendations about why it takes so long to get a permit, to get a site, develop, a, a site plan approved, those kinds of things, because that's costing money and slowing down the ability to get housing on the ground, which would change uh, costs. So basically use a nationally recognized model and immediately and with urgency review that department and then implement change. Mm -hmm. And kind of tied to that, you also mentioned um, cutting some of those development fees. Some people might not even know this, but when a project is going through this process, they have to pay uh, permitting fees and fees basically to the development services department to do that review process. Do you want to talk a little bit about cutting that? Sure. Um, one of the things, of course, if, if we're if we're in a an affordability or cost of living emergency, which I think we are, then we need to act with urgency. That's what you do when you're in an emergency. You act with a, with a sense of urgency and purpose. And one of the things that happens is that when someone wants to come in and develop, let's say, an affordable housing project, they're asked by the city of Austin to pay, as you pointed out certain fees. Well, I'm calling for a reduction in those fees by at least 50% for the kinds of projects that we're looking for to get more housing on the ground and faster. There's no need for the city of Austin to get in its own way when it says it wants to reduce the cost of housing and then turns around and adds to the cost of housing by charging fees. All right, and then another thing on the list here is letting each of the council districts take the lead a bit more in the code rewrite process. People have been listening in Austin know we've been kind of caught up in this land development code rewrite uh, debate for many, many years now. Um, talk a little bit more about what you mean by this. This is one that I'll, I'll mention, you know, your main opponent in this race, Celia Israel has criticized a little bit. So talk about what it is and why you think this is an idea that might get some traction. So. Part of the reason we've been stagnated for a, about a decade on trying to get changes to the land development code is because we made it an all or nothing fight. We said that it is going to be this code and it will apply comprehensively across the city and in every district just this way. And as a result of that, uh, there were issues with it and including legal issues where the court said, you can't do it that way. And so what happened is in this all or nothing to fight, we got nothing. So what I'm saying is let's create a process that allows for districts that want certain types of density in their districts. Maybe they even want code next uh, applied in their district. They would be able to bring that forward and it not be vetoed or thrown out because of the way a vote has to be taken 
when it includes a comprehensive uh, approach. Now, a couple of things. It doesn't allow any district to veto the fact that they may have housing in their district. There would be a baseline. We currently have a baseline across the city. It's called the blueprint for housing. It, it let that baseline serve across uh, the city and then incentivize by saying to a district, if you're going beyond the baseline or moving faster than other districts, then you'll get an increment of taxes that because when, when, the, when the tax base grows because of your development, you'll get a bigger share of that increment for things like um, uh, displacement, anti-displacement costs, or rent uh, issue, helping with rent, rent, uh, rent assistance, maybe parks, roads, all, all those sorts of things. In addition to that, you would also have what I anything that is citywide, it would continue to apply citywide. Um, so for example, how, how do we make it easier to get uh, accessory dwelling units on a piece of property? Or how do we make it easier to avoid having just a McMansion when we might have a duplex or a threeplex or a fourplex? Those would apply citywide and would, would impact all of the districts. But the bottom line to it is, is it's, uh, I've proven in the past, an ability to figure out ways to avoid the winner-take-all approach. And what stagnated us for the last decade is it was a winner-take-all approach, and we all kind of lost. Mm -hmm. Two more points on your housing ideas here. Um, next one is the Central Texas Housing Partnership. Do you want to explain what that is briefly and let people know why you feel like it's a good idea? Yeah, um, the Central Texas Housing Partnership is what I am proposing that we do with all of the jurisdictions in Central Texas. We bring them all together, and that way we can identify the land that we all own that can be used to help provide more density and more housing. And then as part of that, the city of Austin would be uh, helpful in making sure that permitting uh, it gets done in a, in a timely fashion. But we've got a lot of fallow land that's not doing a whole lot of good for our taxpayers. And so I'm saying what we ought to do is make that work for the taxpayers. And that is across jurisdictions. Mm -hmm. And then the last one is an interesting idea. This is the idea of building a master plan commute at Walter, uh, Walter E. Long. You know, this one I'm curious about because I can understand the idea of like, whoa, this is a huge amount of land we could build a lot of housing on. Also, you know, I, I'll admit I'm a parks person. People love parks in the city and we're also losing that. Do we want to sacrifice our parkland for development? Talk about what you're proposing here, though, right? Because it's a mix, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And okay. very important that you recognize that it's a mix. OK, so explain so, it for us. Yeah, sure. Um, out, at, out at Decker Lake, you have... Um, you have a lake, obviously, um, called Decker, <laughs> and then you have a whole lot of land, um, thousands of acres of land that surround it. Most of that land is currently fallow. There's not anything going on it, and people aren't using it as a park. Now, you have the Expo Center that the city leases to the county, and which is in bad, bad shape and needs upgrading, and you have... Um, some area for people to go and, and do a little bit of boating and get out on the lake. But most of that land is not being used as a park today. The planning for a park revealed that it was an estimate would cost $800 million. And that was in 2018. 
So from a practical perspective, going in and master planning that as a, a, a 2,500 acre park or 1,600 acre park or whatever it is, is, is probably not practical. And we ought to get a return for the taxpayer. So what I've proposed is set aside a huge park. If you, if you did eight, I'm making this up, but if you do 800 acres, that would make that the largest park in Austin by a long shot, um, except if you can't count wilderness area, for example, the Barton Creek Green Belt and that kind of thing. And you don't have to make it just a single park. You could make it a park in different parts of the, of, of the development. Then what you would have is you would have about three Miller neighborhoods that we could master plan for the future, just like we did with Miller back when I was mayor then. When I was mayor the first time, we closed the Miller Airport. It was about 740 acres, and we master planned it. It's the most dense development in Austin, maybe in the state of Texas, um, and, and it's working. What this would do would be to allow us to build more affordability and more housing over time, including places for, you know, office space, retail. It would be a master planned major community for our long term. And a key part of this is some people say, oh, well, it's, it's way out. The truth of the matter is it sits on a rail line called the Green Line that's already owned by Capital Metro. So you would have transit so that that, that development would be about 10 minutes from downtown. The taxpayers deserve to get a return. And by the way, I'm a big, big parks guy, but we got to be practical and we have to prioritize. Mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned transportation. Let's talk about that uh, briefly. Uh, two big transportation things, you know, everyone's been talking about. I-35, we'll start with that. Um, what are What's your general opinion about I-35 and the expansion that's been proposed and what do you feel like we can do as a city realistically? Because that's also a component of this conversation. That, that's, a, that's a very important point. I'm glad you asked the question that way. Well, first of all, I will fight all of the time to reduce congestion in this town. And we need to do that. And I-35 is a key part of that. It makes, and it would make a difference for a variety of reasons. First of all, I-35 has divided our community. It, 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 uh, it, was, it, it's, it involves race, and, if, and we need to get rid of that monument to a division in our community and, 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 and racism. And we can do that by taking out the upper decks, lowering it, and making it at, at, at grade and tie east and west together. The word is yeah. yeah, stitch it together. Um, and, and, and have the opportunity for caps. The second thing is affordability in this community is not just an Austin issue. It's a regional issue. And people are moving out of the city for a variety of reasons, but including affordability. And it seems like some say, well, we, we, we feel for you when you can't live in Austin, but the minute you get out of Austin, we don't care whether you can get back into town. And we need to be able to have transportation improvements that will do that. Third, it would be the second biggest transit project in our, in our community behind only Project Connect because you would have managed lanes. The, the, the added lanes would be managed lanes that would allow not only for uh, uh, buses to, to work like they do on Mopac 
uh, now in that managed lane, very successfully, I might add, but it would also make it a safer road because EMS and fire would be able to use those managed lanes and get through better. Um, so th the final thing I'll say is it the road needs to be improved. We need to continue to push for improvements, but we don't own the road. And you know, it's an inter interstate highway that has a number of jurisdictions. We need to have as much of our, our Austin values put in there as we can, but ultimately we need to fix the road and there are multiple reasons to do that. Mm -hmm. And then before we close, we've been asking our candidates to do a little show and tell activity at the end. I'm not sure if your staff told you to, uh, about this. I was emailing with them. Do you have a, a thing for this? I've got something that I think describes me pretty well. And why okay. Stuff. All right. Let's, Is that let's what see. what you're after? Yes, I would love it. All right. Okay. What do you got for us? So, background real quickly. Uh, my wife was out of town recently and I was out campaigning and doing, you know, different campaign, yeah, yeah. And when I came home, I came in the back door, which is the way we enter the house and there were toys in the kitchen. And I didn't, I wasn't playing with those toys. Um, and now I, I noticed that all the way into the family room and I came up immediately to my office, which is where I'm sitting right now. And the place looked like a playroom. <laughs> That's why Mario is still there, right? Uh, <laughs> right behind me. Of course, I wasn't upset to begin with, but if I were, this was on my desk. And if you can see that, that's a note that says, Pop, I love you from Effie. That's my <laughs> almost five-year-old granddaughter. But I have another granddaughter who's, I guess, about 18 months old, and she also did her <laughs> note to me there at the bottom of that. Just a um, bunch of scribbles. <laughs> just a bunch of scribbles. Just a bunch of scribbles. But but Effie, you know, she calls me Pop and she writes, Pop, I heart you from Effie. And I got to tell you, um, when I was a younger man and people would talk about their grandkids, I was always happy for them. Yeah, yeah, it's nice you like your grandkids. And <laughs> as you can tell, I've become as goofy about them as you can get. And that was Kirk Watson. Next up, we're going to listen in on an interview I recorded with Jennifer Verdon. Okay, I'm here with Jennifer. We're talking the mayor's race. Let's just jump into it. Who are you? Why are you running? I'm Jennifer Verdon. I'm a lifelong Austinite. I'm a UT graduate with a degree in finance, and I'm a successful businesswoman. I actually have been running for office since about August of 2020 when I was a first-time candidate. I ran for District 10 City Council here in Austin made the runoff and came very close to defeating a very well-funded incumbent, which means I formed a coalition of Democrats, Republicans, and independents. And that just affirmed for me that my platform and the things that I care about for Austin are popular all across all, um, well, both sides of the aisle and, and in the middle. And because this mayoral race is only two years down the road, it seems like I never stopped campaigning we are still campaigning on the same platform. We've moved um, cost of living, affordability, and cutting property taxes up to the top, but we still have in second place effectively addressing homelessness and restoring public safety. And then right below that are just other things that are just core municipal services and restoring, hopefully, and uh, our parklands and our green spaces to properly maintain those to a world-class standard but also in there in the mix too is hopefully saving Muni for future generations of Austin. 
Great. Well, let's let's get into some of those issues. Uh, we'll start with affordability. There's a lot of aspects to that, but we'll start with the big one. I've heard you mention quite a few times and seen it on your signs, which is property taxes. So talk about if you were elected, what you'd like to see done with property taxes in particular. Well, in particular, property taxes. Uh, do you want to talk about that in relation to affordability? Yeah, in, in relation to affordability, because obviously I've seen you want to try and lower the city's portion of our property tax bill, correct? Right. Well, there are two ways that the city impacts the cost of housing. One is property taxes, and the second is restrictions on development of new housing, i.e. the land development code and permitting. So, of course, I am the only mayoral candidate that has a written plan uh, that's been posted on my website for months now about how we can freeze the city portion of our property taxes and then reduce the city portion of our property taxes by three and a half percent per year. And we can do that without cutting any existing services because Austin is growing at over a 5% clip and has been for a few years and we expect that trend to continue. So that's that's one thing we wanna do with property taxes. And then of course we want to increase the senior exemption and the disabled exemptions and then benchmark those to the rising cost of housing. So that will enable those people who are more likely to be on the fixed income be more likely to be able to pay their bills and stay in their homes and age in place, which is a, a wonderful thing. And I think we all care about that. And then, of course, the, the other thing that we want to do in relation to property taxes, which is not directly under the mayor's purview. However, it is under the mayor and council's purview to direct our city lobbyist and her staff in this next legislative session. Her number one agenda item needs to be to assist AISD in brokering a more equitable recapture or Robin Hood formula for our AISD property taxes. So if we can get our city portion of our property taxes and AISD portion, if we can get those two addressed, we are going to make huge strides in actually increasing the affordability of Austin rather than what we constantly do under our current leadership, which is increase taxes at every possible opportunity and just make it more unaffordable for everyone. Mm -hmm. um, and for folks that don't know, just as a reminder, Robin, who what you're talking to there is we're basically half of the property taxes we send to AISD actually leave our community and go to fund other school districts. Um, when you're talking about property taxes, one more question on that one here in Austin. When you say without cutting services, describe that a little more, because I think maybe the counter argument or what we hear said is that, well, our city is growing and so we need to expand those services and that kind of eats up the budget. And so I think people might question, is it really realistic to be able to cut property taxes and without cutting services? So talk a little bit more about why you feel like that's possible. So like I said, we're growing at over a 5% clip now. Even if you factor in uh, inflation, there's still another 1.5% there. And that's before we do a third-party financial audit and really run through the city of Austin expenditures with a fine-tooth comb, find and eliminate wasteful spending that we have now. It's just, it's not, uh, it's not unrealistic to say that this can be done. We have to have a mayor and a council who actually have the will to get it done. And we have had leadership in... For so long, I would say at least five to 10 years, if not longer, they're always looking for ways to increase taxes because they, they're not looking for ways to decrease taxes. They're looking for ways to raise more taxes, to spend more money rather than what we regular Austinites want are lower property tax bills. We don't need 
utopian things such as guaranteed basic income. We don't need to be funding those things on the backs of taxpayers. I think it's just common sense. I don't, you just have to have the will of the council and the mayor to do it. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the other component of affordability there, which is our land development code and our permitting process. Um, Talk about what you'd like to see the mayor and city council doing to work on affordability from that angle. Okay, so first I'd like to point out in case people don't know who I am and what I do for a living. I've been in the Austin real estate business for over 30 years. I am an independent real estate broker. So of course I have vast uh, in-depth knowledge about the very important Austin housing market, but also I am a design build remodeling general contractor. And I have been for over 20 years. I have in-depth knowledge of our land development code, zoning issues, and the very Um, inefficient bureaucracy of our development services department, which is where we do permitting, where the inspectors come and go, it's it's, it review process, et cetera. So my two main opponents do not have the same experience in that regard at all. So I do know things that can be done and can't be done and, and how realistic these ideas are that come across the dais. In my land development uh, code paper, I have several papers posted on my website This one is actually called Housing LDC and Permitting. So anybody who wants to go to jenniferforaustin.com, I have all of my detailed policy papers posted there regarding homelessness, public safety, uh, housing, and effectively addressing homelessness. So I I would really encourage people to go visit and read those papers before they go to the voting booth, because I, I think they'll find that I am the only mayoral candidate who's actually offering solutions to everything that Austinites care the most about. But regarding the land development code specifically, like I pointed out a minute ago, that that is one of the ways that the city of Austin impacts the cost of housing, which is something Mm -hmm. that we all care about. But of course it would be, it's just, I have many proposals set out there. We can reduce lot sizes. Of course, one thing we always need to keep in mind is we want to respect existing deed restrictions and we will want private property rights and we wanna protect the beauty and uniqueness of Austin's different neighborhood uh, neighborhoods, right? We we don't want to, to homogenize the city of Austin, which is much like what Project Connect would have done if we had if we had actually been if that had passed and not been shot down by the appellate court. But the oh, the, you, mean, uh, you mean I'm just gonna code next. Code next, yes. Uh, right, yeah. you, say, you said Project Connect. Oh, it's so understandable. Sorry. I know it's you've been sharing on my mind too. I I um I. It's not a secret. I campaigned heavily against Project Connect. I'm still um, campaigning heavily against Project Connect. I realize it's been passed. We could talk about that again in a minute if you want. Yeah, to, we'll talk about that in a minute. But yeah, so Code Next specifically um, and the Land Development Code, obviously that didn't make it through the courts. And so I saw on there, you know, you talked about um, on your white paper and and on your website, you talk about doing things like minimum, you know looking at minimum lot sizes, looking at changing our parking requirements, maybe not eliminating them, but making them a little bit less strict, things like that. It seems like what you're getting at here is uh, not trying to have a, a less comprehensive approach and trying to get some things done that we can get done in the short term. Is that accurate? Some realistic things. They don't have to be world changing and life changing, but they should be practical. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about public safety. Another big issue that you you raised there. Um, I know that you've written on your website, you really want to make sure that we're closing that vacancy gap in APD um, and trying to repair relationships between uh, city council and city leadership in APD. Um, do you feel like there's a way, 
you know, the, the reason a lot of these changes to our police department came about in the first place is because there was community concern about accountability, about APD, um, maybe not treating everyone equally or the way we want them to. Do you feel like those concerns have been addressed or do you feel like there's a way to still work on them while repairing the relationship? Like, how do you, um, I guess, work through both of those? So the short answer to that is we should have never halted the cadet classes ever. We, we, we missed out on three cadet classes that cost us at least 150 officers that would be on the streets today patrolling by now. So we are 280 officers short as of September 22nd, I believe. And we have the contract uh, negotiations that are going yeah. on for a, a APA right now. And if by March 30th, we do not come to uh, a new contract to get them back under contract, we are at risk of losing an additional 300 officers officers who might be uh, deciding they're, they're already close to retirement or they can buy time and get to retirement. But if we don't get back under contract with them and we fall back to civil service law, there's some officers, officers are standing to lose somewhere in the neighborhood of $60,000 if they don't take early retirement. So basically we would be incentivizing even a, 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 just a devastating attrition of our already very um, skeleton crew APD. I do always believe never, uh, don't halt the academy. We can change in process as Admiral Inman said in the, that I think it was four graduating classes ago, he was the keynote speaker. And, and he pointed out in that speech that that was the most devastating thing ever for our police officers. They are going to be working for years, probably over a decade, in an understaffed, very stressful, um, you know, a lot of overtime situations. And that is counterproductive to what the, the citizens who were most concerned about things that might not have been going right with APD. Well, that just worked in complete contradiction to what, they're what they say they were trying to achieve which is better training, better de-escalation, less stressful work environment. And, and also we need to get our, our police department fully staffed back up to what is budgeted. And we have to keep those academies going and we need to find ways to retain our existing officers. We need to find ways to re-recruit recently resigned officers who are still, they don't need to be completely retrained. And of course we have the modified cadet classes too for former law enforcement officers, but there are lots of things that we need to do, but we are definitely in a, a public safety crisis. And a lot of that has to do also with our homelessness crisis. We can't possibly take care, solve that problem as well as we can, if, unless we have a fully staffed police department. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you brought up homelessness. I saw on your website, one of your priorities is wanting that homeless camping ban to actually be enforced, which I assume is where you're talking about having a fully staffed APD. Another thing that you mentioned on your website is, is some criticism over city council's policies of buying up the hotels and turning that into permanent supportive housing. Why do you disagree with that? And what would you want to do differently? Permanent supportive housing is just like a uh campsites, they're, they're, unless they are required to receive treatment and live by a curfew and all the things that would be required that makes sense, we can't just, you can't do a housing first. It has to be housing plus treatment. Otherwise it's not going to work. For anybody who's ever had um, a family member or a friend who was addicted to a substance or mental health problems, we know that substance abusers or people who are addicted to substances like that they're not going to, you can't just help them. 
they have to actually want help. They have to be able to want to receive help because it's very hard work to recover from an addiction. It's not, it's not easy work. And it takes somebody who's very motivated. If you just put them up in a little studio condo, they're going to, they're going to either leave there because they, they're missing the community that, that, that they form these camps because they form, that's how they form community. Most of these people do not have um, a, a social network like families or close groups of friends. And that's one thing that contributes to their addiction problem. So it's, it's not just um, give them, give them housing and, and then they will be well. It's a. It's got to be a comprehensive approach. Permanent supportive housing is not working. Those expensive hotel enterprises are absolutely insane. A terrible use of taxpayer money. We can find much better ways to help people, but they have to want to be helped. And mm -hmm. that's. And I can answer more about that, but it has to do with the homeless population. Right. So the so permanent supportive housing. You know, a lot of times it offers services, but what you're talking about is mandating services or having services being a requirement in order to receive. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Um, I want to talk about transportation. You already mentioned um, oppose the Project Connect. Let's also get your feedback on I-35. There's been a proposed expansion of that program. There's some debate, date, debate in our community about it. And then fill us in a little bit on your reasoning behind kind of your opposition to Project Connect and your feelings on I-35. So Project Connect, as we all know, was sold to Austin voters as a $7.1 billion comprehensive project with four rail lines, bus rapid transit, tunnel through downtown. And as we found out three weeks ago, they're now delaying every, you know, the whole scope of the project by another year. We know now that it's at least over 12 billion. There are people out there now estimating it's going to be 20 billion. That's just not what the Austin voters approved is nowhere even close. And it was 7.1 billion, which is mind blowing anyway. The fact that we're passing $7.1 billion programs back in 2020 that, you know, was absolutely insane to me back then. Now we're at 12 and a half billion. That's not the same thing we voted on. I don't see how you can move forward with something that that it has doubled in price at a minimum. And now they're thinking we're, we're not going to ever be able to afford uh, the tunnel uh, through limestone. We're not going to be able to afford all those rail lines. I have a feeling what it's going to fall back on is just bus rapid transit, which it should have been anyway. Bus rapid transit is wonderfully versatile, flexible. We can we can always um, change routes as needed, especially during festivals or road construction, et cetera. So it's just much more versatile and makes a lot more sense and it's a lot more affordable. So I hope eventually after the whole process is done, Maybe we might get lucky and we might get to vote on Project Connect one more time with real clarity on what the project scope is going to be and what the real cost is going to be. So that's one thing. But regarding I-35, um, I'm not the cap and stitch, the, the, the you know, they're calling I-35 racist and it's a racial division line. It's a road that we need and we need to expand capacity. The primary determinants need to be safety and engineering and getting more cars through there. Uh, I don't I don't buy that. You know, I'm not going to buy into anything that's that's racist in Austin anymore. Race, Austinites and are the most inclusive, most diverse city I've ever been in uh, in my life. And I just don't, I don't, I'm not going to, I'm not going to perpetuate those kinds of things to that are meant to divide us as a community. We are, we are not a divided community, but our leadership is constantly trying to find ways to wedge uh, division between us, and we're just not that way. If you really go out in Austin, you'll find that, you know, everybody, I think we're very inclusive and we're not bad people and we're not racist people. I think we need to stop falling for that from our leaders. 
Um, but the other thing about I-35, I want to say the development on both sides, east and west of 35, it is already transitioning away from being any kind of artificial divide. You know, it's it's just not there. We just need to get more cars through 35. It ain't pretty, and you know, but it's important. 35 is an important roadway for us, and we've got to make the most of it. Mm-hmm. Before we close, I want to get to know you a little bit more as a candidate, as a person. What's your show and tell activity for us today? So I'm very proud and I'm very happy that you asked about this because not many people ask me for this, but this is my 2019, I, I'm on a, I formed a, a ladies competitive kickball team here in Northwest oh Austin. Gosh, yes. <laughs> I have been playing on that team for over 10 years. I formed it and we have still the same core group of ladies that play on it. And in our eighth year, we actually went to Corpus in one state in our division. And so anyway. Yeah, you got a nice big, it's a, it's like a classic, uh, you know, high school, middle school trophy. I love it. (laughs) I love it. I keep it right by my front door. My husband husband keeps trying to put it in the closet and I have it right back by the front door. But um, yes, I'm very proud of that. But the other thing I want to say why that has anything to do with my campaign is because I have, I brought together this diverse group of women from all over the city. We really don't have anything else in common besides this common goal of building this team and working together. And, you know, we've, practice hard. And, you know, I led the team. I may, I, we are, we are overcoached. We are underrated and overcoached. I mean, I've (laughs) always recruited the best coaches for us and And that was Jennifer Verdon. Next up, we're going to listen in on an interview I recorded with Phil Campero Brule. Okay. I'm here with Phil. We're, we're talking mayor's race dive into it. Uh, who are you? Why are you running? Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, my name is Phil Campero Brule, uh, running for mayor of Austin, mostly because I've just been uh, fed up with the current city and state government. Uh, I'm a born and raised Austinite. Uh, I've seen how this city has changed both for the better and for the worse. Uh, in recent years, it just feels that our city has uh, abandoned us. Uh, during the freeze two years ago, Uh, We saw politicians sort of run for warmer climates, uh, leaving people like me to drive around the city in my truck, uh, bringing people to the grocery store, bringing them to, you know, electricity and to water. During COVID, when people couldn't work to pay their bills, we had people going to Cancun for weddings uh, rather than staying in town and helping us get through it. So it really just comes down to basic frustration and feeling betrayed. And I know a lot of other other uh, Austinites feel the same way. So I just felt like it was time for someone who actually cares about Austin to stand up. Mm-hmm. Um, I was going through your website, some of the big issues, it seems like in particular, you've been bringing up on your campaign. Um, one is homelessness. Let's start there. Um, how do you feel like the city council has responded to homelessness so far? And then if you were elected, what would you do differently than what city council has been doing? And Absolutely. Yeah. The city council, as well as the city of Austin, had an attempt to do basically 3,000 beds for 3,000 homelessness or 3,000 homeless people uh, in three years. It's three years later, and I don't think we're even close to that goal. And the population seems to have grown uh, upwards of 10,000 homeless people. And if I were to be elected, the fortunate thing is, is that Austin actually qualifies for the ARP fund, the American Rescue Plan fund. And it 
basically allows us to collect $11.4 million from the federal government to allow us to fight homelessness rather than forcing our taxpayers to consistently pick up the bill uh, for different issues that Austin uh, is currently facing. However, is, can I ahead. ask a quick question on that? Absolutely. The, the money, the American Rescue Plan money, though, my understanding was that we already took like a hundred million of that in order to pay for housing for homelessness. Absolutely. So we actually qualify for a little bit more. Oh, okay. and, but the the change that I would make is that the way that city council has sort of messed up the use of those funds mm-hmm. is that uh the city of Austin has consistently tried to be the the shining star, the leader or the city on the hill. We've consistently taken funds or used funds to try to uh, build different programs or uh, organizations from the ground up, basically to show that Austin does it best or we do these things ourselves. However, when we do these things, uh, we often are uh, not as cost effective as what other cities or other programs can do rather what I would rather than building a program ourselves, I would be taking those funds and be giving them to uh, the hundreds of nonprofits here in Travis County. There are thousands of them and a lot of them already have wonderful programs uh, dedicated to mental health issues with the homeless or just providing beds and, you know, safe places for them to sleep and, you know, build a, a routine so they can become, uh, you know, involved with society uh, more often. And, Many of those organizations have done amazing work without city uh, funding. So imagine what they could do with city funding, the things that they could do for 50 cents rather than what we could do for a dollar, two dollars, three dollars. They're simply more they're simply more cost effective. They are the boots on the ground. They have the experts. They have the programs that do the job well. And we need to stop trying to be the leader and start being the follower, letting these programs, Mm -hmm. letting these organizations do the work. And fortunately, the city of Austin has already started kind of started doing that with some uh, local organizations, but we need to take the next step and provide a lot more. Yeah, I was going to ask that because, you know, the city already, like all of our bridge shelters, for example, yes, it's true the city is paying to build them, but uh, the operation is going directly to different nonprofit communities. I know that the city, I think just last week, issued a bunch of grants to consistently you know, the city doesn't operate a lot of homelessness services. It is nonprofits. But are you pushing for more? Like, how is what you're talking about different than what's happening now? So basically what it would be is uh, a lot more uh, intensive involvement with these nonprofit organizations, because when we do these partnerships with these nonprofits, uh, they aren't receiving the, the amount of funding that they probably should be. And they are doing amazing work without it. But just being able to provide, you know, more dollars to them can actually take this crisis and make it manageable. And of Mm -hmm. course, we have the debate of whether these uh, homeless people want the help or whether they don't want the help. But that debate shouldn't really matter because there are people who need the help or want the help. So even if we can get, you know, four or five people off the streets, those those are the, uh, the things that we should be doing as a city. So, of course, that, you know, we're already doing amazing things with them. But I feel like we're not doing enough and needs to be uh, more needs to be going into it. Got it. Um, I want to talk some about transportation. Obviously, a big issue facing Austin voters a few years ago approved Project Connect. Um, I think I saw on your website that that you're a public transit user or have been a frequent public transit user. What do you feel like we can be doing as a city then um, to to steward the future of our public transit network? Absolutely. Uh, I'm one of the few candidates, if not the only candidate, to actually oppose uh, the current state of Project Connect as well as the expansion of I-35. I'll start with I-35 just because uh, 
when we look at other cities and other programs, when they expand highways, adding more lanes, they've realized that once the project's completed years later, or only a few years later, they have to expand again and again and again. And they realize that they either just hit a limit or can do no, uh, can't do much more because it's not cost effective. So the city of Austin needs to start developing ways uh, for the people to not use I-35 because really I-35 is more for people going through Austin rather than mm-hmm. the people of Austin. So the the idea I like to use is that why do we need to put in a bigger pipe for the water when we can just cut off the water and stop the issue itself? So expanding things like Cap Metro, making it more cost effective, because I've talked with a lot of experts about Cap Metro and a lot of them say that it is a flawed system that doesn't do the job needed. It costs way too much for very little uh, effectiveness. When I take the bus home from UT to go see my family, it takes two, three hours rather than something that could probably take me a 15 minute car ride. And I'm not saying that the bus ride should be 15, 20 minutes, but two to three hours is just ridiculous. So small things like that can make a huge difference instead of having to turn I-35 into a massive monster that further divides the city with you know ra- uh, previous racial issues with I-35. And then yeah. with Project Connect, uh, when the people of Austin first voted on it, it was a $7 billion project, but also had very little transparency. Now that we have the plans, we realize it doesn't even serve all of uh, Austin's districts and even doesn't serve the districts that probably need it the most. It serves a lot of West Austin that can actually afford being able to have cars, being able to commute longer distances while East Austin, which is uh, often a lower income area, would easily benefit from uh, Project Connect a lot more than what West also did, and yet it doesn't service them. And then now the well, cost is, is up to 10 billion. Go ahead. Is that, sorry. is that true though? I mean, the lines are the same now, you know, as, as they were when they were put before the voters. And my understanding is there still are more bus lines in East Austin and the blue line runs through East Austin as well. Absolutely. There are, but then when we meet with a lot of these districts or the district representatives, I've learned that a lot of districts are just completely untouched by Project Connect, which is ridiculous, especially when the cost is up to $10 billion, forcing these voters to pay for it anyway, even though they're going to get zero use out of it. So, so what can yeah, what can ahead. we be doing differently? Because it's interesting, you know, you're talking about I-35, not wanting to expand it. You're obviously Absolutely. someone that believes in public transit, but feels Absolutely. like it's flawed. So you're not in the camp of let's just trash everything and right. not have public transit. So what do we do to make it better? So basically it comes down to reevaluation. So when it comes okay. to Capital Metro, uh the the experts that I mentioned before basically talk about how the the lines and the systems that they have designed don't fully uh benefit the city the way that they could be. The lines are a little bit flawed and take longer distances and should be basically redrawn, especially with today's uh, city. The city has dramatically changed within the last five years and looking at population density could be a great benefit to Cap Metro, whether it be, you know, redrawing those lines every 10, 20 years or being it every you know, 25 years. But the thing about Cap Metro is just a very old system that just needs to be redone. For Project uh, Connect, I would very much uh, usher a vote to the Austin people about re uh, redesigning Project Connect. Because right now it is an underground system with limestone underneath a lake, which just isn't very much uh, viable. When I Back when the proposition was first uh, announced, I was actually against it because I knew it would cost a lot more than it was. Right now we're up to $10 billion. I guarantee you it'd be probably up to $20 billion by the time this project's done. But I would usher a vote to allow people to say, are you still okay with this before we break any more ground? Because I 
I assume that a lot of people aren't, especially with all the issues that have come out today. And we could be doing small things that rather than doing a subway, why not something above ground? Why not do something that costs much less to be a lot more efficient? And of course, that comes with different, uh, you know, consequences of, you know, taking up too much uh, space up top or doing these things. But we look at other cities like it's such as Chicago, such as, you know, New York, they have done different ways of being able to use uh, compact spaces, but yet still provide uh, efficient public transportation that isn't always necessarily underground. So when we look at these things, I feel that Project Connect needs to have the opportunity to at least be reevaluated and redesigned. If the city of Austin still votes, yes, we want it. I don't care about the cost. Fine give it to them, but at least have that option out there. Because I feel that a lot of people, when they voted on Project Connect, didn't fully understand what they were voting for. Um, we don't have too much time left, but I want to make sure no we have a chance for you to maybe hit on one more priority. So we talked about um, homelessness. We talked about transportation. If you were elected, what's one other issue you'd really like to focus on? One of the biggest topics that my campaign team and I have been focusing on that I've noticed that a lot of candidates haven't been focusing on is just the overall culture of Austin. Uh, this has come along uh, with Project Connect as well as the expansion of I-35. We've noticed that it comes with the destruction of a lot of small businesses and a lot of local homes or historical monuments that made Austin what it was. And then we also see that with uh, recently Lucy in Disguise deciding to close because they feel that the environment of South Congress is no longer what it is. In my opinion, the city of Austin has traded small businesses and uh, local culture for corporations, for chains, for these huge companies. We've also traded artists and musicians who, you know, paint our, you know, paint our empty walls and fill the streets with music. We've traded them for realtors that charge thousands of dollars uh, without being able to provide affordability for these people who deserve to live in Austin. We have teachers, police officers, and just basic uh, public servants of this city not being able to live in this city, no longer being able to have a voice in the city. They live in Buda, they live in Kyle, they live in New Braunfels, and they can no longer vote for what affects them. So I've noticed that this city has seemingly given up on the culture of Austin, and that is something that... I want to preserve. And I understand that we can't go backwards anymore. I understand that, you know, the city needs to keep moving forward, but that doesn't mean we can't preserve and respect what made this city so unique. That's mm -hmm. why I ask many people to think about why you settled here, why you decided to have a family here. And if those are the things that you enjoyed, do you still want those in your life? Mm -hmm. um, before we close, I want to get to know you a little bit better. Uh, what's your show and tell for us today? Absolutely. Uh, I actually have a ring that I got. Uh, I'm a huge traveler. My parents love to travel. They showed me how to travel for cheap. And uh, over the summer, I was actually in Morocco. Cool. Uh, a strange man came up to me because uh, he could tell I was just some American kid running around. <laughs> uh, but he showed me the sh uh, showed me the town, showed me uh, just how to enjoy Morocco. And then I met his family, had an amazing dinner with him and just learned some amazing stories and true things and he showed me uh this little shop uh that was filled with a lot of local stuff local uh ornaments different trinkets and stuff like that and he goes over and buys me uh, a little ring a little gift from him uh from me to him and you know he definitely he looked at me and said it isn't much uh but i just wanted you to have this and i said this means more than you know even if the dollar price is you know a couple of bucks it still means so much to me and i just appreciated it from that day on and i just 
allows me to uh, consistently uh, keep my mind open and consistently try to provide people with kindness and push everyone to be nicer to each other. And that was Phil Campero Brule. And that was the last of our candidate interviews for today. There are two other candidates who are in this race, Gary Spellman and Anthony Bradshaw, but they did not respond to our interview request. If you want to learn more about all the candidates running, be sure to follow our Instagram page because we'll be publishing an election guide just for the mayor's race. Also, if you click on the show notes for this episode, you can find links to all the candidates' websites. And that's pretty much our show for today. Don't forget to vote. You gotta-